this morning. I'm finishing up a sermon series uh, going through the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's a masterfully told story with a great deal of relevance to our lives today. And just to do the quick recap, God raised up this prophet Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh, this city, this violent city that was an enemy of Israel. And he told them to go and preach basically a message of coming judgment if they did not repent. And Jonah, in response, turned and hightailed it the opposite direction to get as far away as he could. And we don't know why in chapter one. All we know is that he ran away. But God would not let him get away, that on this boat, uh, God sends this storm and essentially turns him around, basically. And when he realizes what he's done, he tells the sailors, throw me overboard into the sea. It's my fault you're in this storm. And as he's in the water, God provides this great fish to swallow up Jonah. And in the belly of the whale, he comes to his senses. He realizes that he's running away from the grace of God. And so God commands the fish to spit him out onto the dry land. And he goes to Nineveh. And in Nineveh, he, he finally shares the message that God has told him to share, that 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But Nineveh, instead of turning their nose up at God, repents, turns from their sin, and God has compassion and mercy on them. As it says in Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, if this were a modern Christian movie or something that you might find on Pure Flix, then it would end right here after chapter 3, right? A nice, neat, and tidy ending, right? I mean, Jonah has come to his senses. He's gone. He's shared the message. And the people of Nineveh have repented and turned to God. Seems like a great place to end the story. But this is real life. This is not Pure Flix. And so it does not end in chapter 3. We go on to chapter 4, and we see how the story of Jonah actually ends here. Let me read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and become angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out, and he sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is God's word. Again, a very unexpected twist in the ending there. And it finally reveals here in the last chapter why it was that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Our expectation was probably that he was expecting that if he went to Nineveh, this foreign nation that was violent, that they'd kill him for this message. But now we find out in chapter 4 that wasn't the reason at all he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go because he was prejudiced against a violent enemy of Israel. And he wanted to see them destroyed, not saved. And he knew that God, he says, was a God of 
mercy, a God of compassion. And he did not want them to experience a God of mercy and compassion. He wanted them to experience the judgment and destruction of God. He says, That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So, again, remember I said at the beginning that this, you could take Jonah either as a historical story or it might be a parable using a historical figure, the book, the, the, the historical figure of Jonah, that commentators are divided on that. But either way, the book of Jonah is meant to hold up a mirror to us, to the original hearers of Israel and to us as well. It's meant to hold up a mirror to us. And it ends with this question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The book ends with a question that's meant to be presented to the listeners. Is God wrong for having compassion on the enemies of Israel? Should you not share, God is asking, in my concern and my compassion for the people of this world? And I think this book of Jonah is a mirror confronting us with these attitudes. With one attitude I think we need to avoid, and then one attitude I think we need to adopt. So I'm going to go through this chapter and just say, what's the one attitude I think we need to avoid, according to this book of Jonah, and one attitude we need to adopt? The first attitude that we need to avoid is this. Avoid tribal pride that leads you to hate, exclude, or dismiss others. I think if you had to sum up the reason for this book, I think you would say it has something to do with confronting Israel about their tribal pride. The way that they took being the chosen people of God and used it not just as a way of having gratitude, but as a way of hating, excluding, and dismissing others. See, Jonah loved his nation. He loved being an Israelite. But he loved it in a way that included a hatred and callousness towards those who were not Israelites. And so when God told him to go and preach a message of warning to Nineveh, he did not want to go because he did not want them to repent. Now, fast forward to today. We are clearly living in a world that seems to be becoming increasingly polarized, wouldn't you say? More and more people go to the fringes and the extremes and can't understand why anyone would believe what the opposite side seems to believe, whether it's politics or religion or some other identity marker. And very often that tribal pride comes with hatred, exclusion, dismissing of the other, those who are not like you. Ironically, we're even in a month that's come to be known as Pride Month, right? A great example of tribalism and polarization that can occur on both sides where there can be hatred and exclusion and dismissal of others who do not think the way that you think, behave the way you behave. And God seems to challenge this attitude in this book of Jonah that there's a way of having a tribal identity without it becoming something that leads to hatred, exclusion, and dismissal of others, that there's a better way of living. And as Christians, we are by no means exempt from this kind of tribal pride of sometimes having an identity that causes us to look down on others, dismiss others, hate others. At its worst, there's even this thing, this catchphrase you might have heard over the last year or so called Christian nationalism that seems to be more and more popping up, you know, or even white Christian nationalism. This idea that we live in a Christian nation, that America is supposed to be a Christian nation, that God has called Christians to exercise dominion over this country. 
There was a recent poll by the Public Religion Research Institute that found about a third of Americans believe that our government should declare this to be a Christian nation. And now, again, there's a way of participating in political life and cultural life to try to influence by your beliefs. But our country is not a Christian nation. Even if there are Christians who were among the founders, it was not founded as a Christian nation. It was founded as a nation tolerant to viewpoints where there be a separation of church and state. And so again, it's one thing to have a belief and a, a, a pride, a patriotic pride or religious pride, but when it leads to hatred, exclusion, or dismissal of others, there's something wrong with that. So three reasons I would say that kind of attitude is wrong. First of all, we know that we're only right with God because of his grace, not because we're smarter, not because we're better, not because of anything else, but because of his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, how can you have any identity that excludes and dismisses and hates other people if you recognize that you're saved by grace, by an undeserved gift of God, not by anything you've done or chosen on your own? Even in the belly of that fish, Jonah realized it was about God's grace, his covenant faithfulness. But now that he's out of the belly and he's preaching a message to Nineveh, he's angry at God for the mercy and grace that God wants to show to Nineveh. He wants them destroyed. He forgot that it was only by grace that he was saved, only by grace that he belonged to God. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12, Moses puts it this way. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, don't forget the grace. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God's grace. Don't think somehow that you earned this. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this, Who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's a great challenge. Again, it's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. Our salvation, our standing with God, everything that we have is a gift, an undeserved gift of the grace of God. So why do we boast as though we're not grace? Second reason it is wrong to have this kind of tribal pride. First, it's because we're only right with God because of his grace. Secondly, we know that our true enemy is a spiritual one. Our true enemy is not of this world. Our true enemy is a spiritual one. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's Paul saying? Our true enemy is not of this world. It is not another political leader. It is not another religion. It is not any of that. Our true enemy is not of this world. It is the enemy. It is Satan. Recently, I read about a political leader who gave this speech uh, he said this, he says, you got to be ready for battle. So put on the full armor of God and take a stand against the left schemes. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. 
You will face fire from flaming arrows, but the shield of faith will protect you. There's one slight, one slight change to Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 in that passage, wasn't there? Right? It was kind of changing the enemy being Satan to the enemy being the left. What's the implication here? That our struggle is not against the devil. Our struggle is against the political left. That the right is on the side of God. The left is a tool of Satan. This is what we're talking about here of tribal pride that leads to hatred, exclusion, and dismissal of others. Instead of recognizing, as Paul said, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. It's a great line worth reading again. Or as G.K. Chesterton, British author, reportedly said, when a newspaper in London set an inquiry asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? He answered, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. Why is it wrong for Christians to have a kind of tribal pride that includes hatred, exclusion, and dismissal of others? Because first of all, we know it's only by the grace of God that we're right with God. Secondly, we know that our true enemy is a spiritual one. It's not anyone, anything in this world. And thirdly, we do not fight our battles as the world does. We don't use the weapons of this world, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Paul said, for though we live in the world, we do not wage world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. He says we have prayer and a father in heaven who will destroy every argument, every pretension that sets itself up against the father. And Revelation twelve eleven says that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It says the way they overcame evil was by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus' death, and by the word of their testimony, by proclaiming the gospel. That is how they overcame the enemy. That is how they overcame the evil one. So I want to encourage you and challenge you that we are not, as Christians, called to expand the kingdom of God through the means of this world, that we need to take dominion over everything by political power, But it's always been about sacrificial service, the testimony of the gospel, power through prayer. Whenever the church goes after political power in order to force the country, the the culture into morality, it usually, usually ends up harming the church and it never convinces anyone to believe the gospel because salvation is not about adopting moral behavior. It's about believing in Jesus who died for our sins. So again, I see Jonah, the primary message of Jonah, as God's word to the people of Israel, rebuking them for their tribal pride, that they are the chosen people of God, but they have allowed that identity to cause them to dismiss and hate and exclude their neighbors. And so when God calls Jonah to go to this foreign nation and tell them a message of warning to turn from sin, Jonah does not want to go because he wants to see them destroyed. And it's a warning to Israel to not let God's grace 
and love towards them turn into this sort of tribal pride where they look down on others, where they've lost love and compassion for others. I think of Jeremiah 29.7, 29, where he tells those in exile, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile and pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. How can we as Christians be about the welfare of our nation, our culture, and our neighbors? There's a better way. So again, what I wanted to talk about this morning was, first of all, I believe Jonah, the book of Jonah tells us to avoid tribal pride that leads you to hate, exclude, and dismiss others. But there's also an attitude, I think, that it calls us to adopt, and it's this. Adopt an attitude of compassion towards everyone. An attitude of compassion. Look at how Jonah ends. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God says, listen, you're concerned about a plant. It was here yesterday. It died today. You didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. You didn't care for it. But I created you, and I created Israel, and I created all these Ninevites, and I love them, and I'm concerned about them, and I'm sending you to warn them of the coming destruction, and to turn from their sin to me. Should I not be concerned about those who I've created? Should you, Jonah, not be concerned about your neighbor? Should you not have compassion? There's many, many passages about the compassionate heart of God. Just a couple to share. Psalm 145, 8 through 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made, even the Ninevites. And so he's patient, calling people to turn from sin to faith in him. Even now, declares the Lord in Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. How are we to gain a heart of compassion? If God's desire is that his church, his people, would not be a tribe that hates, dismisses, and excludes others, but one that has a heart of compassion, how do we develop that heart? There's three things I want to share. First is this. Be transformed by God's compassion for you as displayed on the cross. This is the gospel. In case you don't know what the main message of Christianity is, is that we, though created, in the image of God, to enjoy a relationship with him, we have all sinned and rebelled against the holy God and gone our own way, just like the Ninevites. We all are headed for eternal separation from God. But God loved us so much that he did not leave us in our sin. But as it says in John three sixteen to 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's the gospel. It's the good news. The warning there is clear that apart from faith in Jesus, we are headed for destruction. But God has made a way that he loved us so much that even though we're all in the same boat, Israelites and Ninevites alike, We're all in the same boat before a holy God. He sent his son to die in our place, to take the penalty that we deserved and to make a way for us to be right with him. Isaiah said this, 
many years before Jesus came. He prophesied this, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It's a great prophecy of what he was going to do in taking the nails through his hands to die for us on that cross. So when Jonah has a lack of compassion towards the Ninevites, it shows that he doesn't understand the compassion that God has had on him, the mercy that he has had on him. This Old Testament story is very similar to a New Testament parable. There's a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, maybe you remember it, where there's a man who owes the king billion dollars, Jesus said, and he says, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. And the, it says the king had mercy on him and forgave his debt and let him go. But then that servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him $100. And he said, pay me back that $100 you owe me. And he said, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But that first servant had the second servant thrown into jail. And when word got back to the king, the king said, you wicked servant, I forgave the billion dollar debt you had. How could you not forgive this $100 debt that your fellow servant owed you? It says he had that servant thrown into prison until he could pay back the billion-dollar debt he owed. And I see a similarity here with this story about Jonah, that here is Jonah who's been shown grace and mercy by God, even providing a fish to swallow him, spin him up on the shore. And now he goes out and he's refusing to show mercy and grace and compassion to his enemies. How do you develop a godly heart of compassion? First and foremost, be transformed by God's compassion for you as displayed on the cross. How did Jesus treat his enemies? How did he treat you when you were his enemy? He died for you. He laid down his life for you. And he calls us to lay down our lives for others, even to love our enemies. Secondly, I would say this. How to develop a godly heart of compassion? Recognize that people act in ignorance. People act in ignorance. Again, remember what God said at the end of Jonah there. He said, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. It's another way of saying they just, they're, they're lost. They're lost. They don't know what they're doing. They're the blind leading the blind. And he has compassion on them because they're lost. Even Paul recognized this about himself. He said in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 14, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord is poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He was ignorant. He said he didn't know any better. And God revealed himself to him and turned his life around. And remember Jesus dying on the cross. When they came to the place called the skull there, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I have found, I don't know if you've ever gone to this verse before, I have found this verse to be very helpful when it comes to having compassion on people and when it comes to forgiving people. They don't know what they're doing. If they knew, they wouldn't do it. If they knew you, they would not have done this. They would not have acted in this way. They would not have hurt me in this way. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a, 
it's an understanding that some people just act in ignorance. That they do what they do because they're ignorant. They don't know any better. And so instead of judging and hating, maybe I can have compassion towards them as Jesus had compassion on us and those who killed him. They don't know their left hand from the right hand. They're the blind leading the blind. They don't know what they're doing. So how do you develop a heart of compassion? Be transformed by God's compassion for you as displayed in the cross. Recognize that people act in ignorance. And then second and thirdly, understand that their eternal destiny is at stake. Understand that their eternal destiny is at stake. Sometimes true compassion can come from recognizing that there's an eternity ahead for everyone. And there's two potential destinations here. And this is what God says about that. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is God's heart. He does not want anyone to die, anyone to perish, but everyone to come into repentance, to be right with him. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I find it's often helpful to think on continuums, you know, because often there's two extremes we're supposed to avoid. And I can see how on, on, when it comes to Jonah and Nineveh and, and us and those who do not believe in Jesus, there's kind of two extremes you can take. One extreme is to have that tribalistic pride that Jonah had. I just hope everyone just, you know gets what's coming to them for the way they're living. And God says, no, that's not my heart and that's not the heart of my people. But the other extreme would just be to say, well, you know, let Nineveh be Nineveh. You know, they're sincere in whatever they believe. So I'll just let them do their thing and I'll do my thing. And that as well is not what God says is right. He calls Jonah to go and to preach the message to them and call them to repent and believe. And so, those two extremes are to be avoided. The one that just wants the destruction of other people and the other one that says it's fine for people to just live however they please. That somewhere in the, more, in the middle is what God calls us to. To have compassion, to have mercy that propels us to action, to love, to share the gospel, to share the good news, to call people to repent and believe in Jesus. Recognize the eternal stakes here. C.S. Lewis put it better than anyone in the weight of glory said this it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most interesting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should you not be concerned about this great nation, about this great world? God challenges Jonah and he challenges Israel and he challenges us to avoid a kind of tribalistic pride that looks down on others and hates and excludes and dismisses anyone. But he challenges instead, he challenges Jonah to have compassion as he has compassion on Nineveh. He challenges you to have compassion as he has compassion. As he has forgiven and shown you mercy, to forgive and show mercy to others. To recognize the eternal stakes. To recognize that many people just walk and live and behave in ignorance. But every single person you interact with is, in, as C.S. Lewis put it, an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. May we, in the way we live and the way we love, lead people to Christ. They might know his love and be in everlasting splendors. Let me pray, and let's, let's pray together as the worship team comes forward. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for any tribalistic tendencies, for any ways in which we have allowed your salvation to fill us with a pride that looks down on others. We confess that it is by grace we are saved. It is not by our works. It is not by our intelligence. It is not by anything that we have done. It was a gift from you. Though we all know people in our lives who are acting in ignorance, they just don't know any better because they don't know you. And right now, Lord, we, we name them in our hearts to you. We ask that you would have compassion on them and save them, Lord. Reveal yourself to them. And Lord, that you would help us to have hearts of compassion, even towards our enemies, even towards those who are hard to love, even those who we disagree with. Help us to have compassion as you have compassion, Lord. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Reveal yourself to them and turn them to faith in you that they might have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.